Our text tonight is, as I've said, Proverbs 18, verse 10. And if you'd like to have that open in front of you, that would be helpful. But we're focusing on this verse. And friends, you don't need anyone to tell you that this world is a world that is full of trouble and danger. In fact, it seems as though really the danger seems to increase day by day. You listen to the news or you look at the papers or the various headlines, there is so much to cause us concern. And at times we are taken aback really at some of the things which are taking place and we shouldn't be surprised, but we are really when we see some of the wicked things that are happening. And then there's all the pain and the heartbreak for those who are affected by those things. And danger is always there at every stage in life. Conflicts all over, wars and rumors of wars. And we look at the situation, we just have to say this is a dangerous age. And it makes us ask the question, well, is there anywhere to go for relief from that? Is there anywhere that we can go for certainty and for safety? Well, the Word of God says that there is. And Proverbs 18, verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The Bible tells us that there is true safety nowhere else, only in God. God is the safety of those who trust in Him. I just want to look at this in uh, three various ways and Hopefully it will be a help to you. But the first thing I want you to see from our text is that God is our never-failing refuge. God is our never-failing refuge. You know, this is one of those texts that we should try to memorize and to have to recall. We need its truth, and we need it every day of our lives. We need it because God alone is the one place of safety for his people. And this opening phrase is so significant, the name of the Lord. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, the name of the Lord is God himself, as he has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible. And so the name of the Lord means everything that God is in and of himself. That's the starting point. His name, his glorious being, his eternal, unchanging essence and substance. You know, the Lord Jesus said in the Gospel of John that God is spirit. He is infinite, he's eternal, he's unchanging in his being and everything to do with his person. And so the Bible says that God is one, and yet there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One in three, three in one. And so the name of the Lord involves his essence, his oneness, and yet his three glorious persons. This is the God whose name is a strong tower. And it also includes all things that are true concerning him. His eternal power, his wisdom, his knowledge, his sovereignty, his purpose. His eternal love towards those who love him. His eternal kindness towards those who trust in him. His readiness to forgive sin when men and women turn to him and cry out to him. All these things are bound up in this most glorious name, the name of the Lord. And friends, it reminds us that if we are believers, if we are those who know the Lord Jesus Christ for ourselves, who have that saving relationship with him and in him, then God is totally for us. 
God is totally for us. He is entirely with us. Everything that belongs to God is engaged to do us good, to lead us through, to grant to us safety. Strong towers are something that men have built through the centuries to defend themselves from enemies. As a previous history teacher, I used to really love teaching about castles. Fortifications used to be to the year sevens. They loved it. They loved seeing those things. And you can still visit some fantastic castles with great towers. And when you go in, you see they've got these great, solid, thick walls. And when invaders came, there'd be a retreat behind the walls and a closing of the gates, a pulling up of the drawbridge, etc. And they would be safe, at least for a time. But that's the picture that we have here. Safety, shelter, security in the Lord. The name of God encompassing all that he is, all that he ever will be, his eternal faithfulness to his people, his eternal essence, his eternal persons, his attributes, everything to do with God is a strong tower. He is a fortress, strong, secure, and unlike some of those castles which fell, our God will never fail. He will never be overcome. And this is the promise that God is. He will be a place of safety to all those who put their trust in him, who run to him. And you know, the Bible is full of promises like that. Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. Think of Joshua 1, verse 9, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 26, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord is everlasting strength. And so the Bible tells us again and again, God is a never-failing refuge for his people in all days, and especially in dangerous and difficult days. That's a wonderful thing. Gives us great perspective and hope as we live our lives. And you say, well, why does he protect his people in this way? Well, we are his flock. Luke 12, verse 32, the Lord Jesus said, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You know, any true shepherd never abandons one of his flock when wolves or enemies circled every true shepherd defends his flock even at the risk of his life the lord jesus christ who is our good shepherd if we are those who are believers will never allow the enemy to harm one of those who are his think of that wonderful psalm psalm 23 and verse 4 your rod and your staff they comfort me the heavenly shepherd has the rod and the staff with him in order to beat off every avenging foe that comes against his people. And as that is the case, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. We are his flock if we are in Christ. Also, he loves his own to the uttermost. The Lord will be a place of defense for his people because he loves them with an everlasting love. Do you suppose that God has spent the precious life and blood of his own dear son to ransom us 
to ransom us from sin and from the troubles of life, from the grave, from death? Do you think this God, having spent so much care in preparing redemption for us by the life and the death and the blood shedding and agonies of his own son, is going to let one of those who belong to him perish? He will not, friends. John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, says the Lord Jesus, but I have called you friends. Do you think God is going to let the devil trouble his friends beyond a certain measure? No, he will not. And as these things are so, God reassures us that he is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it in every time of danger and they will be kept. They are safe. And friends, your duty and mine, if we're believers tonight, it is to take God at his word to believe him, to believe texts like this. And in all the trials of life that come to us, whether they're great trials or small trials, whether they're personal trials or public trials, we are to rest in the confidence that the word of God is true. Now, sadly, we don't always do that. You know, we're so reluctant, aren't we, to truly rely upon the Lord in entirety. We foolishly, you know, try to still carry our our massive burdens on our own. We know that God made all things. We know he holds all things. We know that he has looked after this world long before we ever came into it. And he'll be looking after it when you and I are but dust in the grave. And yet still, we struggle to trust him. And friend, in the day of uncertainty, sometimes we find that our faith can be so shallow, that our fears can can quickly overwhelm our fleeting faith. But our text tells us God is our refuge, he is our strength, he is our very present help. There is no situation that any of us will face that is beyond his knowledge. There is no condition that is beyond his control, no situation beyond his power. And so we are to cast our cares upon him, to look to him and to trust him. And that's true in every avenue and area of our lives. You know, maybe there are things that you're really struggling with at the moment and you just can't see how it's going to work out. Even a situation like that, you need to give to him and trust him. Sometimes, you know, even when we consider the state and the the future of the church here, you know, many may want to write us off and close the doors, but this work is not ours. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we bear the burden of it in a measure, but we must not let these things crush us or overwhelm us because the name of the Lord is a strong tower and he is our never-failing refuge. And so he is our never-failing refuge. We should look to him. But also, this text tells us about the instinct of the believers. And you say, well, where's that in the text? Well, the text tells us that those who have been given the true gift of faith, those who have been born again and granted life in Christ, will have a God-given instinct to run to the Lord. The righteous run to it. Friends, we are righteous only in Jesus Christ. You'll never be righteous on your own. Our righteousness is given to us. 
It is the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks upon us, he sees the perfection of his son. We can never earn our own righteousness or make ourselves right with God. It is a gift of grace. And so we are righteous only in Christ. And when the Lord works in us and we're brought to faith in the Savior, we are given that certain instinct that when we sense that the danger is near, we run to God, hide ourselves in him. You know, Proverbs 22 says, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, speaking of the believer. But the simple, the unbeliever, pass on and are punished. They don't see it. The instinct of the believer is that when he senses danger, he runs to the Lord. Now, we all know if we're believers that we should run to the Lord. That is the instinct we have been given. For example, think of Jacob in Genesis 32. He knew his brother Esau, who he had wronged, was coming with 400 men. 20 years earlier, Esau had sworn to kill Jacob, and now that danger was very real. And so what would Jacob do? Well, he ran into his strong tower, and he spent all night wrestling with God. And indeed, he was blessed in measure. Or David at Ziklag in 1 Samuel 30. You say, well, what's that got to do with this? Let me tell you, Saul, who was David's sworn enemy, was still living. It was right at the end of his reign, and he was persecuting and pursuing David. And David had been undertaking the excursion against the enemy, and when he returned back to his base, to Ziklag, the Amalekites had come and stolen away all their wives, their children, all their goods, almost everything was gone. And those with him and the people there, they were, they were furious with David. Furious with him as their leader. Some even wanted to stone David. David didn't know what to do. But the word of God says in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 that he encouraged himself in God. Do you know, he went to his God. He ran to the tower of God's grace. He poured out his heart. And amazingly, the Lord granted him to recover all the wives, all the children, all the goods. It was all regained. You see, the instinct of faith, when things are at their worst, you run to God and pour your heart out to him. King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19, the dreadful Assyrians, they were a judgment on the land and they were routing everywhere. And they destroyed Israel in the north and then they came south to Judah where Hezekiah was king. They captured all the cities and then they're surrounding Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is incredibly difficult to destroy because of location and fortifications. And so the Assyrian king Sennacherib decides to blaspheme God, to provoke the people to try and cause disquiet and panic. And so he sends propaganda out to the people. And he says, if you people think you're safe because of your walls, think again. I've destroyed every nation I've faced. Your God is no better than the gods of other nations. But if you surrender, then you can live in my country, worship my God, and I will allow you to survive. And when Hezekiah gets this letter and he sees the blasphemy, realizes the danger to the people, he lays it before the Lord. And he cries out to the Lord against the wickedness of this man. And God heard his cry. And an angel was sent from heaven and 185,000 Assyrians were slain in one night. The righteous ran to the Lord and he appeared to them. 
In trouble, friends, if we are believers, we run to God. This shows how we should behave in times of difficulty. We run into our tower. When trouble comes, when fear comes, when anxiety threatens to sweep in, the way in which we are to behave is given to us in this text. We're not to stand still, paralyzed, and to be bound up in worry. We are to run to God, to run to Him with our trouble, to pour out our complaint to His ear, and His ear is open to the cry of His people. We are to put God between ourselves and our trouble. As one explains, we are to look at our trouble through God. We are not to look at God through our troubles. And when we do this, we discover to our amazement that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's what gives the Christian boldness in times of trouble. I was reminded again recently of a man called John Harper, Baptist minister in Glasgow in the early 1900s. I've told you of him before, but I'm going to remind you There's a church named the Harper Memorial Baptist Church, even still there. And towards the end of 2020, a letter written by John Harper was sold at auction for £42,000. You say, what was important about the letter? Well, it was written on Titanic stationery, April 11th, 1912, to a fellow clergyman thanking him for his hospitality. The letter was posted in a town called Queenstown in Ireland, where the Titanic stopped at port before setting out across the Atlantic. Pastor Harper was on board with his six-year-old daughter, Annie, and his sister, Jessie, and they were headed to Chicago, where uh, Pastor Harper had been invited to preach at Moody Bible Church. Three days later, April the 14th, the RMS Titanic, the biggest, most luxurious ship that was ever made at that time, hailed as unsinkable, sailed swiftly on the bitterly cold ocean waters. You know, some of the people who were on the ship and who had designed the ship had boasted, God Almighty couldn't sink this ship. At 11.40 p.m. on that fateful night, an iceberg scraped the ship's starboard side and showered the decks with ice and ripped open six watertight compartments. And the sea started to pour in. As soon as it became clear that the ship was going to sink, John Harper took his daughter and sister to a lifeboat. He would have been able to get him with them. He would have been able to get to safety, but this dear brother decided on a very different course of action. He bent down and he kissed his precious little girl. And he looked into her eyes and he told her that she would see him again someday and he said goodbye to her and his sister and they they tried to encourage him to get on the lifeboat. But as he turned around to walk away, he saw a poor drunkard beside him. And Harper said, give my seat to this man. I'm ready to meet God. This man isn't. And then as he ran back down the deck, the flares going off in the dark sky reflected the tears on his face. And as he headed back towards the crowd of desperate humanity on this sinking ship, As the rear of this huge ship began to lurch upwards, it was reported that Harper was seen making his way, crying out that women, children, and unsaved needed to get to the lifeboats. Minutes later, the Titanic began to rumble deep within. Most people thought it was an explosion, but the ship was literally breaking in half. And at this point, many people jumped off the decks and into the icy dark waters below, and John Harper was one of those people. 
And that night, 1,528 people went in to those freezing waters. And Harper was seen swimming frantically to the people in the waters, pointing them to Jesus Christ before the hypothermia became fatal. Mr. Harper swam up to one young man who had climbed up on a piece of debris and between breaths he asked him, are you safe? And the young man replied that he was not and John Harper explained the gospel with urgency and passion only for the young man to harden his heart and to reject the message. And so Harper took off his life jacket and he threw it to the young man and said, here then, you need this more than I do. And he swam away to other people. In the providence of God, Harper would encounter the young man again and oppressed upon him again. You need to trust Christ. And this time the young man called on the name of the Lord. And on those 1,528 people that went into the water, only six were rescued by lifeboats. One of them was that young man on the debris. Four years later at a survivor's meeting, this young man stood up And with tears flowing down his face, he recounted how John Harper had led him to Christ. Mr. Harper had tried to swim back to help other people, but because of the intense cold, he had grown too weak to swim. And his last words before he succumbed to those freezing waters were, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. How does a man get courage like that? How can a man offer another person his seat, his jacket, when it's certain death to do so? How can a man be preaching confidently of Christ when the icy waters are coming over him? The answer is, he has a strong tower. He knows that God is with him. He knows that all the trials of life cannot destroy him. And his instinct is that he finds refuge in God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it. Friends, that is how we must be, to run to the Lord in trouble and to find that strength that is not of ourselves, but of him. And then as we finish, God is our never-failing refuge. Our instinct should be, if we're believers, to run to him. There is then this promise of safety. The believer is sure of safety, eternal safety, when he puts his trust in God. You know, if you have Proverbs 18 open in front of you, just look at the following verse, verse 11. It says, The rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall is his own esteem. Those verses, it's interesting, they're connected. And it highlights a great contrast. And it highlights the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. When trouble comes to the unbeliever, what does he trust in? What is his tower? What is his defense? Well, it's not the Lord. And so it has to be his money or his possessions or his status. And so you see the contrast. Some unbelievers put all their trust in their their family or friends. People are fallible. Sometimes they don't have the resources to help us. Others trust in some outer thing, maybe a show of religion without ever having converted to Christ. That's why we read Matthew 7. The Lord speaks of the, the type of person when he Uh, delivers the parable of the two builders. One builds on the rock, the other on sand. Both houses look good on the surface. And it's really easy to build on the sand. You, You didn't have to work too hard to put a foundation in place. 
But then the storm comes and the rain falls and the winds blow and the floods rise and there are all those troubles in life which come and prove what our foundation is, what we're really built on. And the man that built upon the rock was safe and secure. He was truly converted. He had the grace of God in his life. The Lord was his strong tower. But this other man who was building on the sand didn't have the Lord. He merely had some religion. Maybe he went to church once in a while, called himself a Christian, but he didn't have the grace of God in his soul. And so when the floods and the rain and the wind came, everything collapsed. Why does God send trouble upon a nation? Why does God send trouble into our families? Why does he send trouble in churches? What is the purpose of all these troubles that happen in the providence of God? Why doesn't God spare us these experiences? Because they reveal where we are. When the trouble comes, it separates out people. It sifts us to see where our foundation really is. John the Baptist said that when Christ comes, he will have, Matthew 3, his winnowing fanu in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, when Jesus comes, his ministry will discriminate between those who are converted and those who are not. It will be a searching and dividing process. It's the same thought in Malachi 3, then you shall once again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so these troubles show the instinct of our souls, and if we're not the Lord's, then we won't run to him in trouble. Whereas the instinct of the believer is to flee to God as his one and only defense when trouble comes. It's like Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. What he had committed to him, his soul, his salvation, his eternal well-being, the most important thing. You know, the Lord Jesus warned concerning the importance of the soul. Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You say, oh, that's, that's strong. It's a bit too strong. But the Savior loved the souls of people too well to conceal the truth. And these are his words. The words of the eternal Son of God. And he makes it clear that our soul matters. Only Jesus can say and friends, where is your foundation? To whom have you committed your soul, your eternal well-being? Friend, if it is not in Christ, if it is not in the Lord, then you have no hope. You have no foundation. And friend, also our text teaches us that we are to always do what is right and leave the consequences to God. You know, that's not the, the wisdom that everybody has. Some people think, well, you know, if I do this, I might lose my friends or I might make myself unpopular or I might be at a disadvantage in life or I'll, I'll miss out. That's the logic of the enemy. As one explains, never listen to the argument from consequences. Consequences belong to God. Do what is right always. Aim at the glory of God always. Leave everything else to God to work out. That's our duty. And there's no greater example than the Lord Jesus. He could have chosen to avoid the troubles of the cross. 
and yet he willingly, deliberately, voluntarily gave himself because he knew in doing that he was glorifying God and doing the work that his father had given him to do. Do you remember when they came to arrest him in Gethsemane? Judas came, didn't he, with all those officers with force to lay hands on the Son of God. Do you remember what our Lord did? He turned and looked at them and they all fell backwards. Why did they fall backwards? Because he put forth just a tiny demonstration of his power as the Son of God. Any more, they would have been destroyed in an instant. But he didn't do that. Why? Because it was his purpose to do the Father's will. To glorify God by suffering the pains of death and of the cross for the sake of his people. And he was able to say to his Father in heaven, I've glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And as the Savior, so must every follower of the Lord Jesus. To put God first, never mind the consequences, leave them with the Lord, do that which is right according to his word, our God will see to the rest. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And you will be safe if you do what is right. God will hold you. He will keep you when you follow him. And yes, you may suffer loss in terms of this world. But what is that? Jesus said, fear not those who can kill the body. Fear God who can destroy body and soul in hell. God will take his people to glory forever. And so we must do what he requires of us. We must follow him and choose him rather than our own comfort. Friend, as we finish, in this day and age, Satan is raging on every hand. He's raging in the state. He's raging in the church because he knows his time is short. He knows that his chain is getting shorter with every passing day. He sees that outcome, the lake of fire coming towards him. He realizes the glorious victory of Christ and he does the more mischief, the closer he gets, therefore. And so resist him. When you're troubled by him, don't despair. Pour out your soul to God and run to your high tower. You know, some days, as one preacher says, are windy days. You know, maybe many of your days recently have been one of those stormy days. Everything just seems to be so difficult. But we know, well, it's not always going to be like that. Bright, clear days will come again. And there'll be fair weather and calm sailing yet again. And so in times when storms come, hold fast Run to the tower till the storm be passed and God will bring comfort and joy to his people again in due season. You know, at times we can feel as though we're in the grip of fear because our situation seems impossible. That is when we need to remember that the name of our Lord is our strong tower. You know, there is not one promise that God has made to his people that he will not keep. Not one. Whatever the evil one and all his enemies may seek to do. And you can rest in the confidence that comes from knowing the word of God and the promises of God will never pass away. And that even the darkest moments are often used by the Lord to bring the greatest victories. And so if you are going through that storm right now, 
run to the tower. Know that he has you in his hand and he won't let you go. But what about those of you here who don't have a strong tower? What happens if you're not converted? If you've not got Christ? Well, you've got no strong tower. Where can you run to when trouble comes? That's the problem with being an unbeliever. Might sound smart and clever and in step with the world to reject Christ and to belittle these things. But the trouble with being an unbeliever is this. When trouble comes, you've got nowhere to go. You've got no hope, no defense, no strong tower. And so that's why I urge you, dear friend, don't go on like that. If you are not a Christian, you turn to the Lord Jesus. You turn to him now and you say to him, my Lord and my God, please save me. Save me in this world. And then when trouble comes at any time, be my refuge, be my strength, be my only hope. I need you. Please save me. Please deliver me. If you come to him like that, he won't turn you away. If you come to him like that, and you trust in his perfect life, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, if you come to him like that, then you will be able to join with the rest of us who have known the grace of God and who have acknowledged that our only hope is Christ. Our only strength is bound up in Christ in the name of the Lord, who is our strong tower. That's the only place of safety, whether it be in this world or the next. And I pray that each one of us here would know it for ourselves. May God be gracious to you. Amen.